Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Because last week's episode ran a little bit short, we thought this would be a really great week to give you a bonus episode hosted not by me, but by our very brilliant executive director, Dr. Shiloh Brooks. He'll be chatting with Dr. Carol Swain. She was a professor of political science here at Princeton, the former Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, and then at Vanderbilt. And she's currently a member of our James Madison Society. Today, they'll be chatting about her recent book, The Adversity of Diversity, how the Supreme Court's decision to remove race from college admissions criteria will doom diversity programs, as well as Dr. Swain's very powerful personal story. As always, if you enjoy this episode, you can find out more about us and what we do here on Princeton's campus at jmp.princeton.edu, where you can do things like sign up for our email list and see recordings of all of our events in the past and the schedule of all of our events coming up. With no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Dr. Carol Swain, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you so much for having me on. We're happy to have you on. You are the author of two books uh, that that are are uh, extraordinarily relevant to much of the dialogue of our time. The first, Black Eye for America: How Critical Race Theory Is Burning Down the House, and then most recently, The Adversity of Diversity: How Real Unity Training Can Promote Healing in a Post-Affirmative Action World. And I got to tell you, Carol, I have just finished The Adversity of Diversity. And reading a bit at the beginning about some of your biography, uh, is it's astonishing. So what I thought I'd do is kick this off by asking you to just tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You mentioned, for example, you were 11 years old in the rural South when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, um, that you dropped out of middle school, and that you, you know, made it all the way to Princeton. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of that story and talk to us about how America has changed for better or worse uh, in that time? I can tell you that I was uh, a first-generation college student, and I came from a family that grew to include 12 children. I spent the early part of my life in a two-room shack that had no indoor plumbing. We didn't even have an outhouse. And I missed a lot of school as I was growing up. I eventually dropped out of school after completing the eighth grade. All of my siblings, we all dropped out of school. I married at 16, had my first child at 17. By the time I was in my early 20s, I had three small children. People came into my life and encouraged me and pushed me. And I ended up getting a high school equivalency in 1975. I started community college in 1976. I got a two-year degree in business. Then I went to Ronald College in Salem, Virginia, uh, and earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I graduated magna cum laude while working full-time at the community college library. And then I went to Virginia Tech, thinking that I'd get a degree in political science or public policy, and I would work for the government. And while I was there, I encountered professors 
uh, who encouraged me to continue my education. I started giving conference papers and I never saw myself as someone who would ever be interested in academia. I wanted to work in marketing at Norfolk and Southern Railroad uh, using my merchandising business degree, but I was not able to get a, a position. And some of that had to do with there was a recession around the time, 83, 84, and I was not able to get a job despite being black. That was affirmative action. I knew people. I, I had started a scholarship at my undergraduate school. I was known all around, but could not get the job that I wanted. So I applied to UNC and Duke, got hired, got um, admitted very quickly to UNC with a generous stipend and was very committed to getting my PhD done as fast as possible. I finished my dissertation in four years. I was on the job market. I had a short list. And Princeton, you know, was the school that really recruited me the way I wanted to be recruited. So I ended up taking uh, a position at Princeton. And when I say they recruited me the way I wanted to be recruited, at that time, they had minority positions. Almost every university had uh, positions they offered where they would bring in three minorities, maybe three blacks, and they would compete against one another. I refused to apply to any of those positions. And when Princeton hired me, I applied for an, an American politics position teaching Congress because I was a congressional scholar and, uh, and went there fully expecting to earn early tenure, which I did. And so, I mean, that's my story I was very successful at Princeton, won three national prizes, and the uh, my first book uh, has been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court. But I came from nothing, and I came through at a time when we truly believed in the American dream, that if you worked hard, you could make something of yourself. And that is what I believed. And I had people who encouraged me to continue my education and my mentors did not look like me. So contrary to the statements that you have to see role models that look like you before you can aspire to achieve certain things, that was not my experience. My uh, experience, in fact, was that many of the people that looked like me were not interested in people like me because we were poor. I see. I see. That That's an extraordinary uh, jumping off point for some of the things that I want to talk to you about today. But let me ask you this, just because, you know, your the distance that you've traveled, I mean, that that's very unique uh, and, and really, really amazing. I'm curious, you know, given that that the Madison program, uh, you know, we we uh, we deal with students every day and they're so inspirational and they all they all have a story um, and they're all unique in their own ways. But I'm curious, what would you say to a young person today who's growing up in circumstances maybe somewhat similar to the ones you grew up in and wants to accomplish what you did and travel the distance that you did. And I'm curious if you have advice in particular for religious or conservative young people. Well, during the time I was at Princeton, I was not uh, religious in the sense that I was active in a church, like uh, being a black American from the South, we're sort of all born Christian, but I did not come from a Christian family. I was not a churchgoer, but I was spiritual. I knew that there was something larger than me guiding my life. I believed in one God, many paths. I um, was very interested in spiritual stuff like 
New Age religions, Eastern religions. I was a seeker of truth. But what I would tell a young uh, person is that you can't look at your circumstances at one point in time and, and, and glean your future from it. But I can also say that as a child, I knew that I was different. I had a sense of urgency that there was something I was supposed to do. And I had experiences at least three times where strangers came up to me and they said, you know, you're going to be famous someday. And uh, that did not compute because there was nothing about the circumstances I was in at that time that any of that made any sense to me. And what I would tell uh, young Christians, I would say you have an advantage over me because I did not know God at the time. I knew that there was something bigger than me. I was spiritual, but I was not able to tap into the resources of the Holy Spirit, to be able to pray and appeal you know, to Jesus and ask for the angelic support and all those things that we believe as Christians and followers of Christ. I did not have that. But when I did have my Christian conversion experience, it was like God took me backwards. He took me back to the to a time when I didn't know him. And he showed me where he was in my life, all of those different points in time. And I can remember being despondent. I always struggled with depression until I had my conversion experience, struggled with suicide gestures. Uh, I um, can remember times that I was really down being comforted. And I remember uh, getting a strong impression in my head. If you don't get what you think you want, there's always something better. And when I looked at my life, every time something uh, turned out that I may have had my heart fixed on a person, or maybe uh, I applied at one time I was working in nursing homes. I wanted to be a nurse. I applied to nursing school. I didn't get in. I ended up with something far better. And so it was like, um, you know, God had a protect, protective shield over me when I didn't know him. And there were chances I took because I was very naive. Like for my dissertation, I traveled all across the country with members of Congress uh, to study their campaigns and spend a lot of time with them. But I was someone from the country, rural area, didn't know anything about traveling, took many chances, uh, and I was protected. And I also uh, never got involved in the drug scene. Like um, there was a time in my youth when if it had been around, I would have used it. But we really, it wasn't around. And by the time it was, I wasn't interested in it. And so I think that a lot of things that could have happened to me didn't happen to me because God knew me before I knew him. He was guiding, directing my life, bringing people in, pulling people out. He was totally in control of my life, even when I was not a devout believer. And I, I don't believe I, I was saved in the Christian sense. I had not had a born again encounter. God knew the full traje trajectory of my life. And, uh, and he knew, you know, he knows the beginning to the end. So I would tell a young person that, you know, <laughs> you don't know all the answers. And I would also tell them that the way you think your life is going to turn out, it, I don't believe it always does. I think God gives us a glimpse of where he may be taking us, but he only gives information on a need-to-know basis. So if you're a person that's trying to control everything, 
which I was at one point in my life. And I thought I did a pretty good job until uh, <laughs> after I got my tenure. And after uh, that's when things started really falling apart was after I got tenure, because then that search and that journey and all of these things, you know, that led to my conversion experience. So I had a conversion experience uh, that occurred during my last days at Princeton as I was on my way out. But that's a long answer to your question, but that is my answer. But God gives information on a need-to-know basis. You don't get the full picture. Yeah, no, that's a moving answer. I think that's going to mean a lot to a lot of people who hear this. Let me let me um, turn the, the conversation towards some of the things that you've written recently, but tie it back to your own uh, personal biography. You, there's a place in your most recent book that I was captivated by where you talk about the way that there would be people who would say to you that you achieved your success because of affirmative action and that you're now trying to pull up the ladder uh, behind you so that others can't climb it. Uh, I found that an extraordinary observation on your part. And you, of course, argue in the book that's not the case. I wonder if you might explain that observation and why your position on affirmative action is not the one that's trying to pull up the ladder from behind you after you've achieved all the success that you have. And talk to us about how you benefited from affirmative action, because I know you address that in the book, too. One of the things I want to say that as a uh, faculty person at Princeton, I did not, I experienced a situation that came about because I came from nowhere. Like Princeton, you know, discovered me, but I did not belong to black organizations. I was not a black political scientist. I was not in a black student union. I was not in the black world that a lot of middle-class people uh, grow up in their lives in black sor sororities and they're black, black, black. I didn't uh, grow up that way. And so when I came on the scene as a hotshot for a while, there was a lot of resentment among uh, other black political scientists. And I received threats. I was, uh, you know, threatened and said, I was told that uh, I acted as if I didn't need black people, but I was going to find out when I went up for tenure. <laughs> and uh, and they uh, said that other black people could be at Princeton too if they were willing to sell out that group, and that was very hurtful to me. Uh, and there were many attacks, and I can remember after I received my early tenure at Princeton, looking at my resume and even wondering and questioning, how did this happen? And I wondered whether or not they were right and I was wrong. And and so that sort of triggered a, a depression. And I was not a Christian believer at the time that I had that resource. I wasn't in a church. I didn't have a church family loving on me. That was a very painful period of my life. And when I have these critics that say, oh, you did it because of affirmative action, I say I did it because of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And uh, actually, um, when that act passed, I, that with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it ended or prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, or national origin, and religion. And it opened up um, opportunities because 
for the first time, jobs were advertised nationally. That benefited whites as well as blacks because the old boys, the old girls network, you weren't just reliant on that. There were opportunities that were made known, but also there was outreach and recruitment. And so there was a lot of optimism among black Americans and people had hope for equal opportunity. In fact, the civil rights movement was never uh, uh, fought for preferential treatment. It was about ending discrimination on the basis of race and being able to compete. And this whole quotas and racial preferences and all of those things came about because of white elites trying to get results very quickly because of the riots in the 1960s. And so I would say I benefited from that outreach and the recruitment that benefited me as a high achieving minority. So people saw that I was talented. Uh, I was an honor student. And by being a black honor student, I would say that my race benefited me. In fact, I say that my race has benefited me more than it's harmed me throughout my life because had I been white, no one would have cared if I was a white woman, if I was a white man, if I was an Asian, I would just been another honor student. But because I was black, everyone knew my name. And I went to a small liberal arts school. Within one semester, I was known all across campus and, and I started getting letters from graduate schools. And so I benefited from uh, that part of the Civil Rights Act and its opportunities. And when I went to the community college, it opened doors. I didn't even need a high school equivalency to go to a community college, but I had one. And while I was there, I was able to you know, make the dean's list a couple of times once I started to study. And I started off as a work-study student. I was a work-study student because I was poor, but I was quickly hired for a full-time job. And so America and its goodness worked for me. I proved myself as a work-study student. I ended up working for the state full-time, nights and weekends, going to school, doing the day, having God's hand in that I was able to work at the community college library and bring my children to work in the evening, set them down at a table while I did my work. I mean, how's that? I was not a devout Christian believer, but God had already structured things in such a way that it was easy for me to graduate magna cum laude from Roanoke College because I was blessed with a full-time position that enabled me to do my work at night because not many people use the library. And so I benefited from America's goodness. I benefited from people that told me I was talented, who, uh, you know, who pushed me, but I could have failed because I encountered many people along the way who failed. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is not the same as the outreach and the equal opportunity that came after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, because equal opportunity, you get a chance to prove yourself, but you can fail. With equity, equity that's about equal outcomes, and the diversity pursuit that followed the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that meant that jobs, uh, industries, as well as colleges and universities sent out recruiters to places where there were groups they wanted to be uh, represented on their campuses. And so I benefited from the fact that they wanted more diverse populations, but 
they were hoping to bring people into those environments that would become integrated, not set up that separate um, segregated units on the campuses. And that's what happened very quickly is that doors were opened, but it changed from the original vision of the Civil Rights Act into something that's quite different. And then with affirmative action, I talk about it in the book, there was never legislation passed by two houses of Congress signed by a president. It was always executive orders and that it was widely thought that Ronald Reagan would strike it down. He didn't. I see. I see. So so your view, I mean, I, I suppose that that's your answer to the question of why you're not pulling up the ladder for others behind you. It's that 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 ladder wasn't really a ladder for you. You you put in the work, you had the opportunities that were not, uh, that didn't have a legalistic basis. They had a kind of personal basis in, a, in work ethic or, or God or whatever the case may be. And that's a more fruitful way you, in your view of advancement than these more legalistic means, other than, of course, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Thank you for answering the question to me because I got lost in the story. But yeah, <laughs> I believe that uh, what enabled me to be successful could enable far more people to be successful than are today with the measures that they have out there. I think diversity, equity, and inclusion, the CRT, critical race theory, it lowers standards and it tells Blacks that they cannot compete. It tells you that you are a victim. I was never treated as a victim. And one of the reasons that I guess I eventually became a conservative because most of my life I was a Democrat was that the conservative values, they really resonated with me, but conservatives have always treated me as an equal. I found with progressive professors and colleagues, the things that would come out of their mouths were all evident of how they viewed racial and ethnic minorities and was clearly as inferior people. Uh, they, They openly, talked about lowering standards, and they resented people like me who were conservative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about that? I know in the book you say um, you, you, that your view is that progressives who tout DEI policies really do engage in reverse discrimination of some kind. Can you talk about those policies and, and how they constitute a kind of reverse discrimination? Well, I mean, we have known from the very beginning with affirmative action that it violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but people were willing to tolerate it. I believe that they felt it was like a, uh, a short-term way of, of bringing about inequality. But what we have found is that on many colleges and campuses, they have just had a dual set of standards when it comes to racial and ethnic minorities, and they have lowered standards to the point that if you are Black or Hispanic, uh, and if you get a job from an Ivy League, if you get a degree from an Ivy League school, people don't treat it the same. It's not, uh, it's discounted. And it's because um, employers and, and professional schools know that the standards are not the same. And instead of working harder to get the best and brightest, because there are many minorities that are well-qualified, that came from families, not like my family, where there was a lot of deprivation and, you know, there were were gaps in my education. I had to take remedial courses at the community college. 
but there are racial and ethnic minorities that can meet and exceed the standards. Like they are qualified to be in the Ivy League, but they're not at the numbers that the Ivy League wants of the various institutions. And as a consequence, they have uh, lowered standards and it harms the best and brightest among racial and ethnic minorities when you lower standards. And also when you send the message that, oh, you're struggling with math, don't worry about it, math is racist. This whole thing now that we're telling young people that if you're black or you're Hispanic or you belong to a different culture, you may not you know, get the same answer. If you're black, you may interpret uh, a regression uh, uh, analysis differently. Uh, it's nothing but lowered standards, and it also endangers everyone because they have lowered standards through diversity, equity, and inclusion to bring in people and pass them along. And when they these people enter the workforce as engineers or doctors or lawyers or you know whatever position it is. There's no reason to believe that all of them are qualified and that they are not in some cases endangering the lives of other people. That hurts everyone, but it hurts the high achieving racial and ethnic minorities the most. And I think we need to go back to that era when racial and ethnic minorities believed that they had to work harder to prove themselves. And they said because they felt because of discrimination against blacks, you had to be exceptional. And so there are many people, like you talk of Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center and just various other Blacks that came from uh, other generations, they knew that they had to work harder. They felt they had to work harder, but it was all about excelling, all about defying stereotypes. But somehow along the way, um, progressives have come along to say, you're good. It's okay if you're in a city. It's okay if you speak Ebonics. You don't need to speak standard English. Uh, you know, you don't have to come up to a standard because it's a Western, you know, civilization, European American standard, and that's biased against you. That's discriminatory. And so there's so many things, I think, that push people towards failure rather than excellence. And in my book, The Adversity of Diversity, one of the things that I really push for is that we need to go back to E Pluribus Unum out of many one, and instead of just focusing on differences and uh, separate identities, we need to um, focus on the things that unite us. And I believe that if we go back and we treat people as individuals, uh, uniquely gifted individuals that have talents, that we would be far better along, we would get along far better than we do today because everything that we're doing with race relations at the highest echelons is divisive and it's pitting groups against one another, not just um, whites and uh, against non-minorities and vice versa, but men against women, heterosexuals against homosexuals, you know, Jews uh, against other groups, Christians, all of these group conflicts that come out of Marxism, and whether you call it cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism, it's all divisiveness, and it has worked its way into affirmative action, critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Part of my prescription is that we go back to first things, 
Go back to the golden rule. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. And also practice non-discrimination. The equal protection of the the equal protection clause of the constitution protects all persons against discrimination. And so that includes white people, that includes men, that includes all religious groups. And we have lost sight of that. And then our civil rights laws prohibit discrimination. True, it was passed at a time when we were focused on discrimination against blacks, but it also protects whites. And right now there is reverse discrimination. And I would say that reverse discrimination when it comes to races against white Americans, when it comes to sex, I would say it was predominantly against men, except we are in a situation today where the women's movement has to be fought all over again because of the invasion of men into women's spaces. And so that is bizarre. It wasn't anticipated. We have so many um, issues that are taking place that shouldn't be if we went back to the original intent of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and we adhered to the Constitution. That, that That's interesting, and it make, it brings me to my next point, which is, you know, toward the end of your book, you really do take a critical look at corporate diversity training, and and you indicated in the remarks you just gave that there's a kind of alternative in unity that, that you think we should emphasize and focus on. You know, let me, but let me ask you about this, this diversity training. Is it your position that, that training as such is necessary in say the corporate world or the world of higher education and that the training should just be different from what it is now, or should people just be left alone and not required to engage in any kind That's of training? That's a good question because I've never felt that mandatory training. In fact, um, if you know part of my story, I left academia in 2017, and it was amidst a controversy. Well, I mean, the controversy started in 2015. I took early retirement in 2017, and it was totally my decision. But um, students that were offended by an opinion piece that I wrote in the local newspaper that didn't mention Vanderbilt wanted me to be forced to go through sensitivity training. And one of the comments I wrote on social media was that only an idiot would think, you know, that a woman my age from the rural South would benefit from sensitivity training. Uh, <laughs> but no, I don't think there should be mandatory training. And uh, the the uh, the business model that I came up with with for Unity Training at the time it was because. There were so many conservative businesses. Everyone was being forced to do DEI training, and there were not any options. And I've always felt that diversity, equity, and inclusion training, that was totally wrong. Uh, corporations often had to get rid of their best talent because someone made a misstatement. They offended someone, and it was just ludicrous the way it was being implemented, and I thought that there was a better way. But even uh, uh, today, and certainly since the Supreme Court struck down race-based uh, affirmative action in college admissions, I believe that any um, training always has to be voluntary, but that you cannot come in and change the culture of an organization, only the leaders at the very top. And so there's been a shift in my thinking. I believe that leaders of organizations who know that DEI is destructive, 
that instead of bringing people together, it drives them apart. If they want to change the culture of their organization in a way that brings about unity, it has to come from the top. It cannot come from trying to train the employees. I believe that everyone needs to know the civil rights laws of our nation. Everyone needs to know the constitutional protections. They need to have that information. But beyond that, only the leaders of organizations can set the tone for everyone else. And they need to stand up and stop being cowards. And when it comes to academia, I think about these administrators. Uh, you know, some of them are making, you know, I don't know, maybe let's say millions of dollars or more than a million. They're making a lot of money not to lead because pretty much they have uh, turned the institutions over to the students. Uh, we had that expression, the inmates run in the prison. You think about a, a young person, they're 18 or 19, they come to a college, a university, to a university or a college, universities used to aspire to be marketplaces of ideas. And for myself, had I not been exposed to conservative ideas as well as liberal ideas as a student, I was forced to grapple with those ideas to, to formulate what I believe. Critical thinking takes place in such an environment, but the administrators at colleges and universities have deferred to the students and their most radical administrators, and they have created a situation where universities are failing the students, they're failing society, they're failing the parents, and they are a part of the problem. And so ideally, we would want strong leaders, especially at the head of the Ivy League institutions, since they are the institutions that others defer to, because I believe that if you get strong leaders at the top and they set a standard, a high standard for free speech, developing critical uh, reasoning skills that can only come from exposing students to divergent ideas, they can restore our colleges and universities to the point where they are respected again, because right now they are not uh, respected and many parents are seeing it as a waste of money. I have heard and spoken with wealthy individuals who say that they are giving their children a choice that instead of giving them spending $200,000 or more on a college education, they're giving them the $200,000 and telling them you can invest, you can start a business, you can do what you want with this money. You don't have to go to college. You have an option. They would not be doing this if colleges and universities were providing a quality product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a nice point. Uh I hadn't heard about this $200,000 do what you want with. That sounds, that's, a, that's an well, interesting I, take on it. Well, yes, but think about the parents. There's some, some of them, the grandparents and various people, they've set aside these trust funds, but now some of them are turning the money over to their grandchildren or their children and saying, you have an option. You can invest this money or you can go to college with it. You can do what you want with the yeah. money. And in yeah. some cases I've heard of, the ones that started the businesses are doing quite well. <laughs> I, I, I don't doubt it. Well, let me, let me ask you a final question, and that really involves the direction of our culture. You know, really since the summer of 2020, 
you know, um, you know, we, we, we're talking now in November of 2023, you know, in June of 2023, the Harvard UNC case was decided, which your book uh, takes a look at. And I'm curious if you think, you know, the winds are changing a bit. Is the culture moving forward or past some of this, some of this stuff that was so intense around 2020, 2021, when you wrote Black Eye for America? Um, have we moved? Are, are we starting to kind of move forward a bit? I would say that a lot of truth is being revealed. Uh, we know that diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that billions of dollars were poured into organizations like Black Lives Matter and into you know racial sensitivity training. Corporations have started to jettison many of those programs, and we've learned more about Black Lives Matter. Uh, more information has been revealed about George Floyd's death and the original autopsy and the fact that the family uh, had, I believe there were three autopsies done altogether, and it wasn't clear that he was killed by an officer's uh, uh, knee on his neck. In fact, I don't believe the evidence shows that, but more truth is leaking out, and more white people are standing up and successfully suing for their civil rights. We can take the case of the Starbucks executive. She was a white female. She won a $25 million settlement because of racial discrimination. She also got, she also uh, received back pay. And there were employees of Best Buy that sued because white people were excluded from the management training program. And I would say across the country for the first time, more and more you know, white people, uh, Christians, more and more protected groups. Let me say protected groups under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 are realizing that they have civil rights and they're beginning to press for those civil rights. And so you find more organizations that are settling cases. And I believe that colleges and universities have started to open up. And I can tell you uh, that from my own experiences that I'm getting more and more invitations to speak at colleges and universities. In fact, uh, next week I'll speak at Northwestern. I've been part of a debate at Washington uh, and Lee. I'm speaking um, just many, many places that doors are op opened that at one time they would not bring conservatives on uh, the campuses. And even during the pandemic, and I guess this was easier because of Zoom. I spoke at UC Berkeley, uh, of course, a political scientist, a progressive who wanted to expose his students to divergent ideas. So, yes, I think things are improving, but we could get faster results if more faculty members, if more administrators on the college campuses would stand up. And I think when it comes to the workplace, that employers don't want to be sued. White people are learning how to document discrimination. Men are learning how to document discrimination against them that's based on the fact that they are male. And um, and Christians are pressing for their rights. And so, yeah, I think things are changing, that we have a, uh, a reason for more optimism. And I think that we all have a responsibility to, to use our platforms and our knowledge to press for more change. Well, 
Thank you so much, Dr. Carol Swain. This has been a real pleasure talking to you and just to hear your story, hear your journey, and hear your views on these important questions. Let me remind everybody, Black Eye for America and the Adversity of Diversity both are available on Amazon. Um, Thank you so much, Professor Swain. Thank you. And I'd like to tell you that I'm working on my autobiography. I hope to have it out next year. All right. You heard it here, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Dr. Carol Swain, author of The Adversity of Diversity. If you enjoyed this episode, we really appreciate any ratings and reviews. They make a really big difference for us. You can also follow us, not just our podcast, which you should definitely like and subscribe to, but also our program and what we do here on Princeton's campus at jmp.princeton.edu, as well as on social media, on Twitter at Madison Program, or on Facebook and Instagram. Again, thank you so much for tuning in, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you next week right on schedule here on Madison's Notes.